This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu on Books podcast. Your host for today is Shudipta Datta and we'll be talking to Suchitra Vijayan about her new book Midnight's Borders. Suchitra Vijayan undertook a 9000 mile journey over 7 years to India's borderlands. India shares borders with a host of countries including Pakistan, China, Bangladesh, Myanmar and so forth. From the densely populated border that India shares with Bangladesh to the highly disputed one with Pakistan, she met men, women and children who tell her how they live, struggle, fight and survive. She also offers notes on how these borders came to be and why some of the lines that divide are arbitrary and still being contested. The award-winning photographer, there are some devastating black and white pictures accompanying the stories, is founder and executive director of the Polis Project, a research and journalism organization. So Suchitra, uh, thank you so much for talking to the Hindu. Uh, this is for the Hindu on Books podcast. Uh, welcome. Uh, so uh, I thought I'll start by asking you that yeah, a 9000 mile journey along India's borders, what made you want to understand India through her boundaries? As one of the people you met at Fazilka told you, why would you do such a terrible thing to yourself? <laughs> uh so thank you so much for having me i i really appreciate it um it also feels like uh, uh the hindu podcast also feels like coming back home because when i first wanted to write hindu was the place that i started writing so um thank you for having me um in terms of uh, why um <laughs> um well i think it's it was not what i expected it to be but um i think travel has always been a way for many people um not just now uh, across generations to understand the world um to be curious about our social worlds whether it's ibn batuta's travels along the world um or the chinese mercenaries you find in the chola courts the idea to the capacity to travel and the capacity to understand the world i think they in some ways they go hand in hand um in my case it was also um one is that i left india when i was 17 and i hadn't come back i hadn't lived in india in any meaningful way i'm not a south asianist by training and yet in 2012 2013 it felt like there was a certain moment that i really didn't understand my home anymore in any meaningful way and some of the questions i already had about questions of nationalism citizenship who belongs where uh what kind of beginning to bubble up through the surface and i just finished working in afghanistan pakistan border and that travel itself and i was beginning to make up my own methodology of travel what it meant what it meant to be in these liminal spaces write about them research about them think about them and i think that's where the kernel of the idea started um in a way to perhaps um travel through india's contentious borders as a way to understand uh, both the fringes and the center right right so is that why you include a chapter on the afghanistan pakistan border because that's where it all started your interest in 
doing this? Um, yeah, I think uh, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border for me was uh, a truly learning moment and experience um, that I, I think I'm, I'm still coming to terms with. Because when I first got to Paktika province, <clears throat> I didn't go there wanting to understand the border or the borderlands. I went there to study insurgency practices. I went there to understand why, <clears throat> excuse me, why the world's largest territorial army couldn't um, accomplish what it came to accomplish. Again, what it came to accomplish are also seriously problematic issues for us to unravel. Um, and once I got there, it became very clear how the local populations had very different understanding of the maps. They had a very different understanding of histories of belonging that was passed on to them. They had a very different understanding of histories of violence, histories of state-making. Um, for example, uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that for most Afghans I met uh, who were 80s or 90s in during that travel, during that period, for them, the racial and the political memory of a border was not with Pakistan. It was not even with India as we understand it. For them, this whole continuum was the space where they had traveled across from, there are people who would tell you stories of how from Paktika province, they made their way all the way up and into Kashmir as a part of their yearly grazing and travel. The others will tell you stories of traveling um, from Peshawar to Calcutta to bring brides back home or others, you know, from uh, one part of the world to going to Hyderabad and back. All of this had happened over a course. This happened during our lifetimes. And yet, during their own life, um, these spaces had become nation states, they had become bordered spaces. They, the idea of memory and history also became highly fragmented. Uh, that's why the book starts there. It also starts with the idea of the empire and how 9-11 itself continues to play a very deep impact of how minority communities are uh, policed and globalized across the world. Uh, but also the idea of nation state was collapsing right. just as the idea of citizenship um, that was the citizenship is also a very new right. idea. And I think all of that kind of um, came together. And I think that's why the book also starts with Afghanistan, Pakistan border. Right. And of course, the use of pictures, uh, the black and white haunting pictures that, that are on almost every page, I mean, add thousands of words more to your narrative. Uh, the book and of course, you're a photographer. So. <laughs> no, it's also interesting is that it actually started, all of this started as a visual project. I initially, when I started this work, I wanted this to be a completely right. visual project. Uh, but of course, um, it couldn't just be a visual oh, project. Right. And you give very nice historical backgrounds to every sort of uh, border issue that you, you know, that you visited, every border that you visited. So I wanted to ask you that was it easy to trace the border and write about it? And what are some of the complicated situations you faced, if you, if you could share a few with us? Borders are never easy to trace because, again, as you, I mean, as I say in the book, you know, you start with the idea that um, uh, in the Afghanistan-Pakistan chapter, I actually talk about being on top of the Guldradin uh, base and looking across the landscape. And... As right. people, we are so used to and conditioned to look at the world as these maps. You know, I think I almost thought that there'd be some kind of a line running through this mm -hmm. landscape that could help me understand where Afghanistan stopped right. and Pakistan began. It's not the case. And I think that is true yeah. 
of our own understanding and limitations is that we are indoctrinated to look at the world in such specific ways that the moment we actually confront the social world for what it is, we are unable to write about it, think about it, articulate it in a way that actually makes sense. Um, So for me, it was just beginning to understand what was happening. So I think that... um, that moment of reckoning and understanding our own inabilities was absolutely important for me. Um, in terms of, for example, the, uh, the India-Bangla border was very easy because it's still mostly a, right. a, a porous border, part mm. porous, part fence. It was easier. By the time you get into, for example, when mm. I was trying to go to Tawang, the roads are so bad, you really cannot trace any kind of a border, right? There's no border to trace because the roads are so right. terrible. So some of it is just infrastructural uh, impossibility. Uh, again, in, in Nagaland, it right. was, it's still porous, large parts of uh, what we uh, wrongly call Northeast and club everything together. That region, again, is part porous, it's easier. Mm. But the moment, the real reckoning, I think, came when I was in Kashmir, where it just becomes, it's a landscape made of checkpoints and curfews and bunkers. It was impossible for me to trace anything. You can't trace anything. Mm. Um, uh, I write about this in the book as well as that. Uh, In this case, I would have to use uh, Srinagar was the base. And from Srinagar, I would go travel to a point and come back, travel to a point and come back. Um, the India-Pakistan border again is it's very different. You can't go to the border because the good sections of it is completely cleaned of any kind of civilization. You know, it's more militarized. It is it is the world's most right. militarized right. border. So the traceability of it is just impossible right. um, at so many levels. But also tells us how uh, mm. various landscapes mm. uh, transform in very various ways. Um, now the question of experiences, right. um, it's 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 um, the complicated situations. Uh, more than complicated situations, I think what I want people to understand is that a lot of this took a lot of waiting. Sometimes you would go to a checkpoint and they would just make you wait for mm. hours and hours and hours. Um, right. You no, know, or in in some places you are just. Um, constantly um, looked down, uh, uh, you know, looked looked at in a very specific way. Um, Another thing I want to emphasize is that when I started Mm. traveling, I've I've traveled and I've been in some very interesting slash contentious spaces and I never felt afraid. In 2012, 2013, when I started traveling Mm. through India, I never felt afraid. By the time I did the last leg of travel, it became difficult to travel. India itself had changed. Mm. I felt very uncomfortable traveling. Um, uh, if you look at someone like me, I'm, this was in Kashmir or, or not, India? I'm not. Kashmir was actually very safe. I never felt unsafe in Kashmir. Kashmir was one of the more surprisingly for for a community that has been overwhelmingly in the receiving end of India's militarization, violence generationally. Kashmiris are one of the nicest, most right. welcoming people as an Indian going there. So Kashmir was not, Kashmir was actually one of the safest places yeah. where people went out of the way to protect me and take care okay. of me. It's other parts of India. When I was traveling in Rajasthan, when I was traveling in Gujarat, when I, the Gujarat stuff doesn't appear in the book, but I was traveling in these spaces. Uh, UP, um, again, these spaces, some of okay. these places don't appear in the book, but 
India, mainland India had become very, very unsafe. I felt unsafe. I felt unprotected. Again, this did not happen when I first started traveling. India itself had transformed in those years. And I think that was something for me um, that was very, very palpable for me. Um, the other revelation. Thing, uh, yeah, also because I grew up in Madras. Madras, at least when I was growing up, was a very safe space. And I think mm. the space you grew up as a young person also affects a lot of who you are. Madras, I always never felt uncomfortable walking. Now I feel uncomfortable right. walking in Madras too. As a young person, when I was 16, 17, even in my 20s, uh, Madras was one of those places where I f- didn't feel uncomfortable. Even, But today, um, I, 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 I feel uncomfortable walking in Madras too. Something in India's physical spaces has changed. Um, I would wear, uh, you know, now when I step out, I consciously think of ways in which I police my own body. Um, and I still feel unsafe. Mm. Um, the other thing about the travel, I would say, in terms of complicated situations was that, look, I'm a small, uh, dark-skinned woman, um, which means that and I, I don't wear any symbolic signifiers of religion. It's very uh, hard. If you didn't know me, it's very mm. hard to place who I am. I could be Hindu. I could be Muslim. I could be, uh, I could be Christian. I could be Parsi. I could be Jain. I could, I could be anything. Um, when I started mm. to travel, people never came up to me and asked, what is your caste? What is your religion? Who are you? By the time the last leg of the travel happened, mm. people regularly walked up to me and said, who are you? What is your caste? What is your religion? Where are you from? That was another thing that I, again, mm. physically saw happen in those um, in those years. Um, and also the lynchings had become quite, I, I write about this in the book as well, it's, is that people were beginning to talk to me about these violences that was acts of violences that were playing out. Um, so yeah, so the compli- the, the real complicated su- situation, I would say more than complicated, is just how in the physical space that we all occupy and inhabit itself has changed. Maybe I felt it more acutely. Because and how it has changed. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And yet, you know, in the book itself, there are some terrifying moments when, for example, in that remote village in Twensang district in Nagaland, you strayed into the Burma border. I, I, I didn't, I mean, this is a porous part of the world and you can very easily, um, this is something you see over and over again in the book too. I'm not the only person who's straying into um, yeah. the other side. Um, right. There are border security guards who as I said, the men who come to yes. guard these spaces sometimes don't know where India begins and the other country starts and other country ends or where India starts. Um, right. So this was just a right. space where I had, I just went to photograph because one of the things I did was every tear I went, I would go photograph these border pillars. Um, I have a lot of just photographs of border pillars across. Mm. And that's it. I've just simply gone to photograph this moment. Yeah. And I was already there. Um, that That mm. is what had happened. But what was really chilling and scary was um, weeks before in Calcutta, I had actually interviewed um, a Rohingya refugee. Uh, Again, this doesn't make it into the book. He talks about what the Nasaka did to his family and community, um, how graves were burned, women were picked up, uh, murdered, raped. I had heard other stories of acts of violence against um, these communities. Um, 
by various armed forces. Again, uh, I, I, what I really want to emphasize here is that part of protecting a nation's boundary also comes with giving immense power to men. Uh, I'm not just talking about India's Indian Army. I'm talking about or the border security force. I'm talking about all armies and all men sent to protect or so-called protect these borders. And this power often very quickly right. gets used to inflict violence on other, especially female bodies, are seen as a place to do it. You will see this act of sexual violence throughout the book. Uh, it keeps coming up. Some are more precise. For example, in Sari Begum's case, in other cases, it's it's not. Women, for the first time after 30, 40, 50, 70 years, are talking about what happened to them when they were young. And now they're all very, very old. Um, and having heard that story, I think for me, for the first time, I felt... You know, when I when I say that I, I I feel a hand on my backpack and I'm like, oh, is this is going to happen to me? Is someone going to do this to me? That fear is very ugly. Mm. That fear is is um, I don't think I dealt with it for a long time in the book proposal. This the story never made it. It took me a while for the story to write the story. What that moment felt. What. It, encountering that story and also for a moment fearing for your own sense of safety felt and I didn't want to put it because it felt almost too indulgent mm. because it's not about me this is about an ongoing endemic state violence um so yeah and I think the region itself again uh, for me one of the things I wanted to make sure is I really didn't want to be uh, the person who was an outsider who was coming in to talk about the beauty and the violence, because that's what we constantly write, right? We talk about the beauty of this region and, oh my God, it's so violent. I didn't, right. I really didn't want to do that because I think there are enough right. writers coming from the region now who write about this in eloquent ways. They do it. So my job here was to, as an Indian citizen, um, at least when I was writing the book, I was still an Indian citizen. Um, I mean, I was an Indian citizen till about yesterday. So um uh, I was writing about. Oh, I see. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I just took my oath yesterday, so I, I still feel very weird uh, talking about this. Uh, uh, this moment where, again, um, I talk about Understandable. this. Understandable. Um, I've been away from India for almost since I was seventeen. I've never taken up any other citizenship, and finally, it's become impossible for me not to, for various security reasons. And I finally did. Um, yeah, it happened yesterday. So I'm, for me, in my head, I'm still, I'm very much Indian in terms of who I am. But all of a sudden, I have a different nationality today, overnight. Uh, but when I was traveling, and I still do, uh, is to hold the Indian state accountable for what they do in our names, at least in the name of an Indian citizen. What does it mean to protect a border? Does it have to come with immense violence? Uh, the critique of the constitution, the critique of the Indian state, the critique so that we are aware of the kind of uh, acts that are committed uh, on the border. So that's mostly how I've tried. Again, um, it's very possible that I've failed because I'm still waiting for people to read and come back to me and tell me um, if these moments um, were also critiques that I was hoping to um, uh, think through and write about. In the India-Bangladesh border, uh, the scenario, the scenario that you depict in the book, there's a heartbreaking story of this person called Ali mm -hmm. who tries to, you know, snuff out all light from his home. And um, so can you tell me a little bit 
out more about him and his friend uh, Jamshed who you know took you to him so that mm-hmm. his story is not lost one thing that i found during my travel was people had a sense people had a very keen sense of history keen sense of why recording mm. their own histories were important when they talk about history it is not the history that mr guha writes it's not the history that um say irfana bib writes they write a very for them history is is very they have and i said they have clarity in a sense of what their history means and a need to record it the need to talk about it the need mm. to document it in a way that was important um and jamshed reached out i i didn't know who he was it just the, the this was my second trip and then i was just staying in this place and i really was still in a place where i was figuring out mm. what stories to say and then i was interviewing a few people and he had found out through someone again in these regions people speak to each other there's sense of everyone knows if someone's new in, in these spaces they know so the moment he found out he came right. and he said you know what are you doing and how was this and it was this very wonderful moment of trying to understand truly understand you know um i'm i'm not mm. saying this as a way to throw anybody under the bus but often when i would pitch stories to editors or want to write some of india's most talented most well versed people would come back with the most um inane or the most standoffish of responses Uh, with no need or necessity to engage with a writer who's writing to you to wanting to write about something in contrast people like jamshed right sat down and they he was truly interested in why i was trying to do this he i told him look i'm not a journalist and this won't appear in anything mm-hmm. i don't even know if this will appear i'm still um i must have come across as an absolute mess of a person who knew nothing of what she was doing um it's very possible uh because it's very hard to explain this right what i don't know what i was doing at this point in time right. i i had a sense but i didn't know if it would become uh, an essay would it become a book would it become a photograph it was still very early on and yet he sat with me he tried to understand and he said look this looks interesting to me you're trying to do something why don't you come see my friend talk to him and that's how that connection happened we are still friends we still we still message each other all okay. the time he has more responsibilities so but in the sense that we are still friends okay, you know uh, uh sorry okay. you were saying something but ali went missing right that's what you write yes. in the book yes ali ali goes as ali is gone missing ali is gone missing ali is not been found um we don't know what happened to him and that's how that started yeah and we had this conversation it took me 3 years to write this chapter by the way i didn't know how to write it it was a lot of information it was just uh, um and i also had to verify also a lot also when of you go to nelly mhm no uh, what i mean to say is what i meant to say is that and then you go to nelly in another world of you know neglect and like people were so surprised to find you there because no visitors seem to go there anymore and yet it was a Um, such a horrendous massacre happened there true in nelly there was very different because you know every few years somebody turns up there you know every few year for the anniversary somebody turns up and does something in the sense that it's not that people 
don't go right. there it's just that people go there for very specific reasons people go there they do a very quick story uh, i'm not there are some right. very wonderful work that's come out of this there's some the important documentary work that's come off it there's some very local language assamese work that's come out of this uh but in general every few years okay. during the anniversary somebody goes does something and having said that none of this is actually translated into any kind of justice for the people uh for me what was very surprising is right, no closure mass, no closure no sense of justice there's these mass graves that people remember burying people right they're mass graves that you you're living you're walking right. through right right um uh, there is a photograph uh again we which we, are now grasslands yeah um we really had a, a long conversation about whether to put that photograph in or not uh you could see the 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 parched earth mm. and you could see fo- the, the people standing on it it's it's a very um that's that's right. that's just that's the place where the bodies were were buried you know that's the space where they um and they remember they remember right. uh they remember but uh there's also this moment they says you know when these people are gone there is no remembrance left there's no sense of what happened left right um and also when i go right. to talk to mr bhavan singh who actually won a Pulit- won the world press photograph for photographing the massacre nobody had spoken to him i was nobody he didn't even know. know that right. his images were such an important part of memorialization in these spaces again people didn't know this was bhavan singh who took the photograph but right uh his photographs is a, is a part of the memorialization and sadly mr bhavan singh also passed away during the covid lockdown which i found out months later and this is someone who is an important chronicler of modern india and his archive of images you know i've i've spoken about this right. in every interview i know is that this wonderful photographer has been to every possible corner of this nation and he's photographed in india that is now gone his archives oh my god are just remarkable and there is a very you know uh, there's a moment when he says something um uh you know that that that's always stayed with me you know he talks about you know how some of the most powerful people in this country who could have done the right thing did nothing mm. and he also talks about how he has this immense love for every this nation and its people but right he's also sometimes he says i'm scared i'm i'm just i uh, yeah so in that sense again we've lost someone we've lost um someone who could have been an immense uh, historical resource um i interviewed him hoping that one day i would go back and have another conversation with him i haven't gone back to um i haven't right. gone back and now he's gone and we've lost another we've lost another right. fragment of history So let's end it with Natasha Javed's story where you know you write that she suddenly stumbled onto the story that her great 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 grandfather was killed at Jallianwala Bagh. Mm-hmm. Tell us a message for Indians that I found that very interesting what she said. Natasha is a wonderful she's a friend um yeah. but she's also just an incredibly wonderful um human being. And someone who and this is you know I I find this so um I find this so uh, so remarkable that almost all Pakistanis I speak to mm. have an immense love for India. For them, India is 
you know, um, I'm also reading Professor Manan Ahmed's book, The Loss of Hindustan. Yeah. For them, loss of, there's, there's a true longing and loss of their home. And then also a love, a true love for... Um, the shared yeah. history. Shared history, love, whatever you call it. Yes. And, you know, she says, you know, she says this very beautifully in the thing where she says, uh, you know, we've gone through this. We know mm. what it means not to have a constitution. Mm. And that's why we had to throw our bodies in the fire. Right. You guys have always had a constitution. You were lucky. You were remarkable. You had a civil right. society. We would right. look at you guys and think, oh, my God, look at you. You have your artists and writers and people fighting the state. You had that. And she says, today, every time I encounter an Indian, I tell them that once you let the genie out of the bottle, it's difficult to. There is the sense that somehow India is is losing its whatever. I mean, others would argue that India has always been this way. It's only been democratic and socialist and republic and secular for a handful of people. Um but I think the real story is that uh, I can I've I've never gone to Pakistan. My visa to Pakistan was uh, denied. Yes, you write about it. Yeah. Uh, Natasha cannot. Natasha has not been to Amritsar. Natasha's family is originally from Kashmir, so mm-hmm. there she's now. She can never go to Kashmir in in those ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, her grandfather's name doesn't appear in the list of the dead. Uh, but now yes. we know that one dead death kind of creates wasn't sleep, accounted for. Mm-hmm. Wasn't accounted for. But more than Natasha, I've also quote another friend um, in the book where she talks about, you know, you know, once um, she talks about the family leaving. Uh, these are Shia Pakistanis who left Pakistan. And they say, you know, uh, she says, once we ha- we packed our bags, we could never unpack them. Right. You know, it didn't matter how many right. homes you moved uh, through, how many borders you crossed, how many times you remade your life. The suitcase is always there. Mm. And she says, you know, um, you have no idea what it is to live under a military dictatorship, Sachitra, and no country should ever suffer what we went through. Mm. All of the sentiment comes from a deep sense of what they've lost, and they see us going through the same way. Not again, as I say, I'm, I, I don't want this to become somehow we were better. They, no, that's not the point. The point no, is it's just learning from history. Learning from history. Of course, India's first political prisoners uh, were arrested in 1949. Uh, the history of First Amendment to Indian Constitution is also a deep betrayal of what it means to be a citizen who opposes the state. Our first yeah. massacres happened soon after. I'm not just talking about the Holocaust and the massacre that happened during the moment of partition, especially in Bengal, what happened. Yeah. Uh, much has happened. Not that yeah. our Constitution, did, but the Constitution was something. It, it was a moment that... It was a revolutionary constitution that Baba Sahib gave us. You know, imagine right. 300 million people who had never been, who been nothing but less than subjects were given citizenship, equality. But that equality never translates into political equality. The political, sorry, the political equality never translates into social equality. And that social equal, inequality continues to plague every aspect of our life. Right. And... For me, the book also ends with Mira, my daughter Mira, and Natasha's son Kabir. Kabir, right. 
Because, and also it's so funny because they're called Meera and Kabir, you know, it's, it's the most, yeah, I know. <laughs> also because when I had Meera, I, I didn't even know Natasha. And then my friend, another friend said, so Chitra, for, for you, the one thing I will tell about you is that like, you know, life conspires to give you poetic lines. And I'm like, yes, of course we have Meera and Kabir. Um, yeah. But it is true. It is, it is, you know, that, that night when I came back, I just came mm. back and I cried. I I cried because it was... I still cry. I still cry thinking because something shifted in that I know that we have to do better for Meera and Kabir, but also that perhaps we will not. Perhaps Meera and Kabir will be left with the same inheritance of loss that all of us have felt. Right. But Meera's mother has done a, done her bit by bringing, you know, voices from the fringes which nobody hears of. So those stories have been recorded. So that's a, that's a great thing that you've done. Thank you. I hope so. I hope, I hope so. I hope one day Mira grows up and she cares enough. I mean, that's another thing, right? That raising kids who care enough is also important. I don't think, I don't think we are doing a good job of that. Um, I hope Mira grows up and uh, reads. I hope she does a bit. I hope she, I, I hope both, there are, there are millions of Miras and Kabirs, right? And I hope. Right, right. Um, my husband was telling me that their generation is called the alpha generation. <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe the alphas will come for the rescue. Hopefully. Yeah, Fingers maybe. crossed. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much, Suchita, for talking to me. And it was a delight to read your book. I mean, it's a sad book, but, you know, it's it was really nice to read the stories. Thanks. Thanks for this wonderful conversation, Suchita. I really appreciate it. And thanks for engaging thanks. with the book in such meaningful ways. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 